0: We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind.
1: We shall overcome, deep in my heart I do believe, this Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become The international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. We shall overcome because
2: the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Human rights for everyone, for men and women, for the majority and the minority, especially the minority. The big idea of the Universal Declaration is that everyone on the globe has the same political, social, and economic rights.
3: All human beings are born free and equal in dignity. All human and beings. All humans are born free and equal in dignity and
2: rights.
4: Without distinction of any kind, such as race, such as race, color, color sex, sex, language, language religion, religion, freedom of expression.
2: No one shall be held. No one shall be held in
3: slavery and servitude. In slavery and servitude.
4: Everyone,
5: Everyone has, has the, the right, right to, to work. work.
2: But if history tells us anything, it's that the big idea and the way we live it in real life, don't always match up.
1: You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor.
2: Martin Luther King, Memphis, 1968.
1: Whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, It has dignity, and it has worth.
2: This is the Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. I'm your host, Alana Bridgewater. This time, the right to work, the right to fair pay, the dignity of labor, and what happens when all those rights are taken away.
1: It is a crime for people to live in this Rich nation, and receive starvation wages.
2: In 1910, more than 90% of the African-American population lives in the South, then pushed to survive by economic hard times and a lack of any good options for work. Many Southern Blacks move north in the Great Migration. From 1916 to 1930, that's 1.6 million people. The music of New Orleans follows too, by way of the Illinois Central Railway. And what happens is the gritty jazz of Storyville in New Orleans gets a makeover. The musicians are now wearing tuxedos. There are palm trees on the stage. Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, and Sidney Bichette are playing clubs in Chicago called the Royal Gardens and the Dreamland Ballroom. What happens to jazz is an American story. The marketplace starts to pay attention, and the marketplace, throughout American history, is the place where kings are crowned and others are sent away hungry. Uh,
1: the more kids, the more I
2: It all changes depending on the politics and social conditions of the time. And in the early 20th century, the social conditions for black musicians were not good. Black artists from New Orleans were making a splash at the Chicago clubs. But by 1917, in a country where some citizens were more equal than others, they could only watch while the money and the fame went somewhere else.
6: My name is Damon Phillips. I'm a professor at Columbia University and in the business school. Like any form of music, the transition from one style to another is more fluid. But in the marketing world and the business world, it often has a starting point. 1917, for many people, they say it's the birth of jazz, but it's really the birth of recorded jazz.
2: In New York in 1917, five musicians who'd met in Chicago get together in the studios of the Victor Talking Machine Company. They are the original Dixieland jazz band.
6: Up to that point, the big music were things like either classical, Caruso, or John Philip Sousa marching band music. These were often big hits. There were others, but those are big hits. The Two Revolutions of 1917.
7: Joel Dinnerstein at Tulane University in New Orleans. Which has always amused me, because of course it's the Bolstrick Revolution, and 1917 is the year in which we have the first recorded jazz song. Ironically, by a white band, the original Disky Line Jazz Band.
6: What started in 1917 with this recording, it was advertised with black caricatures in the minstrel tradition. My, my read of it is... How are we going to describe this music? Well, it was the music of black people, but the group was white.
2: Kwame Coleman is a musician who teaches jazz at New York University.
8: So these are a group of of white New Orleans musicians, uh, I think some of which coming from an Italian background. But, you know, as far as American race politics were concerned, these were white men who claimed ownership, nominally speaking, by calling themselves the original Dixieland jazz band when, in truth, they showed up a little late to the scene. You go to the record store or wherever phonographs were being sold at the time, you see the name Original Dixieland Jazz Band. There's a claim to authenticity that, in effect, overshadows and obscures the true-to-life dynamics of a city like New Orleans, where the music did originate in Storyville and the Red Light Districts, and broadly speaking, in the Black communities of New Orleans.
2: Music made popular in nightclubs and ballrooms by African-American musicians becomes big business. But only when that music is sanitized for a white audience with white players. That's where the money was. The original Dixieland jazz band is pure show business. The trombonist plays the slider with his foot. It's a mix of vaudeville and the race music out of New Orleans. The B-side to their first recording is a song called One Step. Joe Jordan thought the thing sounded familiar. Jordan was an African-American ragtime songwriter. To him, The one step was a poorly disguised reworking of his own song, That Teasin' Rag. So he sued for copyright infringement. And the original Dixieland jazz band was ordered by the courts to recall their records and relabel them, to give Joe Jordan credit, but no money. In 1917, the point was made. In the marketplace, black American music was up for grabs. Well,
8: I think about uh, you know one of the maybe most important themes in any act of artistic creation is that of ownership. Who owns the work of art? And I think the question of ownership then opens up the discussion of equity, of fairness, of access. Because in the early days of jazz, oftentimes the music creators were not the ones that own the product.
6: One of the things that's interesting about this, and especially around the larger topic of human rights, early on, there was a a struggle by record companies on how to even define what jazz was. And what it wasn't. Um, And there were a few recordings then that featured African Americans, like Jelly Roll Morton. As the story goes, he did recordings with the original Dixon and Jazz band, but they did not tell the recording studio that he was black. His skin is lighter, he's from New Orleans, so they passed him off as Spanish
8: or Italian. The model then during Jazz's nascent years was that an artist would be contracted by the phonograph company. They would cut a few sides And that was it, they would get a one-time payment for those sides, as popular or unpopular as those sides proved to be in the marketplace. That already sets up a kind of power asymmetry where we can see how unfair that can be because of the kind of work that goes into being a musician or being any kind of creative person. You know, you're constantly working on your craft, but the payment system didn't account for that. They were basically contracted workers. And that, of course, is a really big conversation, something that we're grappling with today. These contracted workers that are brought in basically paid a nominal amount for their labor. Of course, around that time, King Oliver and Louis Armstrong were also active and playing, too. So interesting that fantastical, legendary figures that we have, well, in the case of Buddy Bolden, absolutely no recordings of. And in, in the case of King Oliver, they're very, are very scant.
2: I'm Alana Bridgewater. You're listening to The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. There was one African-American musician in the mix who did have access to the world of white commerce. And if not for the fact that he was murdered, at the height of his fame, he might have changed the economic and racial politics of jazz. His name was James Reese Europe.
9: When we see somebody like the composer, band leader, James Reese Europe, he becomes an important figure because he was allowed to transcend the stereotypes of where African Americans, blacks, uh, could work and in, in trend.
2: David Schrader at New York University.
9: New trends would always overshadow things from the past. In New York City, for instance, into the teens and 20s, New York was the center for music publishing. So the importance was the commercial element. How much can you sell, 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 sell? There became certain buzzwords in the 1800s, late 1800s. It was John Philip Sousa and marches. And then it became Scott Joplin and ragtime. And then it became the blues. And then it became swing music. So all these monikers, these types of music brought along the African-American culture and it allowed uh, an opportunity for this new music to either be accepted or not be accepted in the general populace.
2: James Reese Europe, born in 1880 in Mobile, Alabama. As early as 1910, he founded a group of African-American musicians called the Clef Club. His music wasn't quite jazz, not quite ragtime, but with feet in both camps. To critics who didn't know what to make of him, he said, we have developed a kind of symphony music that no matter what else you think is different and distinctive. And that lends itself to the playing of the peculiar compositions of our race. It's been created, by the sufferings and miseries of our race.
9: Well, the barest for it to be accepted was it was considered low class music or barroom music or ex slave music within white culture. Europe got his start not because he was African American or into ragtime, but it was his connection with a uh, white dance couple in New York named Vernon and Irene Castle. And the Castle's we're working the vaudeville circuit.
10: Mr. Olsen, would you play something for Eddie? Do that, will you?
9: They selected James Reese Europe as their composer and their conductor, which all of a sudden gave Europe the presence and the power and the initiative to start building his empire in New York City, which included developing an ensemble called the Clef Club. And um, he instigated the first black musicians union. If you can place yourself historically, that's amazing. That's impossible that all of a sudden uh, black musicians are, are doing better, making more money. They're considered the authentic sound for this music. And this allowed Europe to thrive. James Reese Europe. It doesn't sound like jazz, it sounds like orchestrated ragtime or a lot of unison playing. His music was based around banjos and bandonians and in fact, in New York at the time when you were competing with other vaudeville acts all down 2nd Avenue right down the street here, you had people like Harry Houdini hanging off of uh, skyscrapers in a straitjacket in front of thousands of people, come see my show. Europe did the same thing. He would have a group of 50 banjo players playing his music all at once, and the spectacle was the number of banjo players. In fact, the name of his group was called James Reese Europe's 50 joy Whooping Sultans of High-Speed Syncopation.
2: In other words, James Reese Europe, like the original Dixieland jazz band, knew how to make and sell music.
9: So it's like all about branding your name. And so people would go and they'd count, is there 50 there, yeah, yeah. So the reality is it's hard to find 50 banjo players and a lot of them might have had rubber bands on their strings instead. But that was show business back then, to pull people in to pay that admission fee.
2: Then, the Great War of 1914. Vernon Castle is killed in a training exercise. James Reese Europe becomes a captain in the United States Army. He's sent overseas to lead a band, to build morale. He and his musicians are on the front lines, and James Reese Europe is the first African-American soldier to see combat. The band members return as heroes. But one night on tour in 1918, Europe gets into a fight with his drummer, who stabs him, and James Reese Europe dies at the age of 39.
9: When he passed away, it kind of slammed the lid on that area. And then as technology grew and musicianship grew and new trends in music grew, Europe and his style of music in that period were slowly covered up. To where today nobody really knows much about Europe. It's interesting talking about technology again. There was a guy in 1914 named Freddie Keppert who was a black musician from New Orleans. He refused to be the first person to get recorded because he figured somebody would listen to the record and steal his licks. In fact, a lot of the early trumpet players, and you see Louis Armstrong throughout his career holding a handkerchief, and these guys would put the handkerchief over their valves so that you wouldn't see the valve combinations, how they actually did these little tricks on the trumpet.
2: The UN Declaration on Human Rights makes a promise that all people are entitled to equal pay for equal work, without prejudice. The story of jazz is, in part, a story of how those rights were so easily and so often taken away.
1: Now, the I ever been in my life, Uncle Bud like the me kissing his wife. You doll. hey, Papa Are you
2: doll? What was at the heart of an economic system that thrived on inequality?
3: Oh, my goodness. Um, it goes back to the beginning of the music, I think.
2: Ingrid Monson is Quincy Jones Professor of Jazz Studies at Harvard University
3: and author of the book Freedom Sounds, about jazz and civil rights. One of the reasons music is so important in African-American culture is it's an arena in which African Americans could excel, even almost to the point of inverting the racial hierarchy in a culture, in a society that under Jim Crow was committed to the base humiliation of African Americans. Okay, now you're gonna want this Jim Crow blues, huh?
11: That brain news makes a man wear out his shoes when they getting a Jim Crow play.
3: Jazz arose during a particularly horrid time of American history, post-Reconstruction, the development of extreme Jim Crow laws, the peak years of lynching. All this was part of what an African-American musician had to contend with from the beginning.
11: This old Jim Crowism did bad luck to me. I've been traveling, I've been traveling from toe to toe. Everywhere I have been, i find some old Jim Crow.
3: So Jim Crow was the name given to a series of laws established restricting access to public accommodations, governing the public behavior of African-Americans in which they were supposed to show deference to white people. So the restriction of voting rights in many states passed these laws. These are laws governing uh, against interracial marriage and everything else. So it's a legally codified separation of the races.
2: So in terms of inequality, of getting paid for the work, the physical separation of the races also means an economic separation, with only a few exceptions. Louis Armstrong's first recording with the Hot Five came in 1925, eight years after the first original
3: Dixieland jazz band record. People often point to Louis Armstrong as as being perhaps the biggest figure in the early one. That was a kind of triumph and a respect that was given to African-American culture that you would not find in any other sphere. So there was always a way in which excellence in the music itself was read as political and a part of a struggle for gaining recognition of one's full humanity.
2: The mainstream paid attention to Louis Armstrong, as long as he played by the social rules.
12: This is all happening in the 20s and 30s.
2: Scott DeVoe is the author of The Birth of Bebop, A Social and Musical History. And it's
12: a a fairly explosive growth in dance music and in American technology. It suddenly made black musicians aware that, in fact, this is the area that they should be going into. But music has always been an area that white people have felt comfortable having black people do for them. And in some ways, it's kind of like the kitchen labor, butlers, things of this sort. I mean, in some ways, you know, musicians tend to wear tuxedos when they perform, but that's like livery for the white people. You know, it makes them feel that they're being catered to. Fast forward
6: a few years to the early 1920s, and now that it was clear there was a market for it and it was going to be successful, A lot of the larger record companies wanted to uh, cash in and take advantage of it. If you're a company and does classical music, and this new form of music comes along, what what do you do? And what they began doing is attempting to redefine what jazz was, and the jazz was actually more symphonic music. principal figure associated with it is a guy named Paul Whiteman. When you first see it, you're thinking, did they make this up, or is this his
9: real name? Paul Whiteman is an interesting character because he saw the opportunities in jazz. I mean, he he came from Colorado. His, he was a schooled musician as a conductor and as an arranger. And Paul Whiteman saw that there was this great interest in black music in black communities. and so. His term was, I'm going to make a lady out of jazz and kind of sanitize it for white audiences. So he took these same syncopated rhythms and cleaned them up and put them on stage with a white audience in an orchestra setting.
2: Whiteman's orchestra is all white. He hired Jack Teagarden and Big Spiderbeck to play in the band. This is the business in which Paul Whiteman worked, and he was a smart businessman who knew the rules.
1: I've got those happy feet, give them all low down beat, and they begin dancing. I've got those
2: He worked in a system that told black artists they could play in clubs, but forget about access to the larger mainstream marketplace. I
12: don't really think that they're entering it with the idea that being a musician allows them to be a social critic. In fact, I think probably the opposite. They are very cautious politically because they're well aware of the low and vulnerable status of black people in American society stemming from the beginning of the 20th century, which is in most ways, the worst time for race relations in this country.
2: While black musicians like Duke Ellington were playing a different kind of jazz for smaller, exclusive audiences at the Cotton Club in New York, Paul Whiteman became a movie star.
6: He was promoted as the King of Jazz. He made a lot of money as a recording artist. He has a film called The King of Jazz.
2: The 1930 movie King of Jazz was a mashup of cornball comedy sketches, jokes, and cartoons. With Whiteman as conductor and with vocals from a 27 year old Bing Crosby.
1: Wake from your sleep, all you weary ones who are weary of the night. Look to the east, all you dreary ones who are weary. Morning they're blue. Smiling sun tells everyone come and start life anew.
6: It was very successful for them until the early 30s. was a macroeconomic depression.
1: They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed them
2: all The mood had shifted. When there was earth to plow When it came to work, eyes, the right to work, and the right to get paid for work, right nothing showed how fragile those rights were, they like the Great Depression me, of the 1930s. In America, it was as if the jazz musicians who'd worked so hard in the background while Paul Whiteman held the spotlight and the immigrant songwriters of Timpan Alley knew better than anybody what it was like to be left out. So they wrote about it.
1: Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime?
7: Once I built a tower. One of the things that happens in the Great Depression, Depression is that there is more solidarity life. among Americans than at most historical power. moments, because fully during most of the 1930s, Brother, 25% of Americans are unemployed. And not only is there vast unemployment, but there is not much of a sense of, of how the future will work out. There's a certain amount of pessimism about technology because people at best work factory jobs. And so there is this moment in which there is a solidarity between the artist and the vision of people that they're speaking to.
1: Remember, they call me Al. It was Al all the time. Why don't you remember? I'm your pal.
2: Say, buddy, can you spare a dime? And some of the music of the Depression is upbeat. <laughs> as if to say there's bound to be a way out of this mess. Someday the money will come back. This is America, and it will come back in buckets. You'll
10: find your fortune falling all over town.
0: If I ever get a job again, I will never be a snob again i live
10: within my means, carry a dollar in my jeans,
0: if I ever get a job again.
10: I was one of those hicks that came here from the sticks, trying to find the kind of fame the name of Broadway stands for. I was one of those fools who dreamed of riches and jewels. Now I awake, find my mistake, can't get a break, Broadway's a fair. speak that's dim and dingy Where spenders all pretenders cheap and stingy All I smell is rotten scotch and ginger Cigarettes, cigars
2: now This was the music of mainstream America during the Great Depression where a world turned upside down was bound to right itself sooner or later. Elsewhere in the country in the south, far from the big cities, it sounded very different.
10: Cigarettes, (laughs) cigarettes.
5: Songs as we understand them and as have reached us through the historical record were documented well into the late 1800s by interested folklorists and antiquarians, exclusively white, who heard them sung, chanted in various locales in the Deep South.
2: Nathan Salzberg is a musician and curator of the Alan Lomax Archive at the Association for Cultural Equity. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky.
5: In the 1910s, they started to be published exclusively in collections of sort of black expressive folklore. And then in the 1930s, among the first recordings of them were made by John A. Lomax and his son, Alan, who were at the time working on behalf of the Library of Congress to orally collect black southern traditional music. John Lomax had the idea, which was borne out maybe beyond his wildest imaginings, that if he went to the southern penitentiary farms in states like Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, where the prison system was basically just a recreation of the slavery era plantation with the individual plantation manager being substituted by the state, that he could collect these songs that were more or less extinct in a lot of other places and that's what happened and what he ended up recording throughout the south were these absolutely phenomenal very harrowing instances of exclusively black prisoners of course many of whom were arrested and um Sentenced and imprisoned, sometimes under the most specious of uh, circumstances. The states made piles of money off of these prison farms because they were able to raise crops and sell them, or in even worse circumstances, uh, they set up a situation called the convict lease system by which they basically rented out their prisoners to private concerns. State made the money. The prisoners were more or less completely brutalized and worked till many of them were injured or died. And there was no recourse. It was just, again, a recreation of the slavery system. This
1: was one of
5: the very first prison work songs recorded by the Lomaxes. This one was in late 1933. It's a song called Go Down Old Hannah. The song addresses the sun which colloquially was called Old Hannah. Go down Old Hannah. Don't you rise no more. Don't you rise no more. If you rise in the morning, bring judgment on. Bring judgment on. Bring
1: judgment on. I die.
5: Not long before this recording, John and Alan Lomax met the uh, now famous songster Hughie Ledbetter at the Angola State Farm in Louisiana. He was released from prison in 1934. He was known as Leadbelly.
11: No yes, all right. And if you rise in the morning. Spring judgment day, oh good God, make it sound way back on there sound like it's good old times. It was soon one morning.
5: Leadbelly picked up a lot of songs in his repertoire from his own experience in Angola, and this was a song that he also performed with his 12-string guitar accompaniment. But this song was, as Lomax, Alan Lomax, the son, put it, was one of the turning points in his life hearing this particular song performed. He thought it was more powerful, he said, than any music contrived by any civilization in the world, that in the face of abject brutality and inhuman Treatment these men could make and sustain and music like this, which morning, literally, as, as Lomax later put it, kept them alive and normal.
11: Set this world on fire, and if you rise in the morning, I'd like to be knocking on somebody's door. First time I've heard you sing that many <coughs> verses to the song. Well, you can just put, you know, just make them right on up, you know. Old Hannah is the son. How did they how did just the get son. the name Hannah. Correct? Yeah, they called it Old Hannah. He called it, it was Hot. He just gave it a name. That's what mm-hmm. the boys give it when I was down in prison, you know. Mm-hmm. They gave it that name. Put on Old Hannah. Oh, it, it was hot down there. Ah.
2: I'm Alana Bridgewater. You're listening to The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91.
12: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I'm happy to present Jazz of the Philharmonic. And unlike the other jazz concerts, which have the fixed groups, groups like Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald and her group, the Oscar Peterson Trio, this is the jam session. And for me, this is the first love in jazz because I like to hear musicians improvise and do different things each night. So if we're lucky tonight, we'll hear a very, very good concert. And if we're not, it'll just be a good concert.
0: I first met Norman Granz in the lobby of the Fairmont Hotel in Dallas. Uh, I remember because I printed the picture enough that it was the 17th of March of 1980. Ella Fitzgerald was opening at the Fairmont Hotel in Dallas, and I'd already been sending Norman some of my photographs, which he ended up using as record covers.
2: Tad Hershorn is an archivist at Rutgers University in New Jersey and author of Norman Grant's the man who used jazz for justice.
0: Norman just thought that the idea of presenting jazz to segregated audience just made no sense whatsoever, that this was an African-American music, that obviously at that point jazz was still the popular music of the day, and he wanted to be able to present it in a way that was loyal to the essence of jazz and those who loved it.
2: By the 1940s, Paul Whiteman's orchestra has broken up and Whiteman is working in radio as music director for ABC. Meanwhile, Duke Ellington's star is rising fast. He and songwriter Billy Strayhorn make up their minds. They'll expand the idea of jazz and make it an African-American art form, not just dance hall entertainment. But the system that once rewarded the original Dixieland Jazz Band over black artists like King Oliver is still in place. The jazz world is segregated. Black artists and white artists don't mix, not much. There are exceptions. As early as 1935, Benny Goodman is hiring black musicians for his band. He's a big enough name to get away with it. And a white concert promoter named Norman Granz has made up his mind that a system that rewards white performers at the expense of black performers makes no sense,
0: especially when it comes to jazz. Well, let's do this. We'll go back to when he started booking jam sessions along Central Avenue in Hollywood in Los Angeles. He was very mercurial and said in his ways, just the type of personality that it took to be so forward-thinking. He was an admirer of a Philip Randolph, and what that means is freedom, real freedom for African Americans and minorities is not only access to the political system but also economic justice. <laughs>
10: And that expands this whole question of human rights in jazz.
2: Tammy Cronodal is a singer and professor of musicology at Miami University in Ohio. But you also
10: have jazz musicians who are coalescing around the politics of the industry. And so they're beginning to question economic rights as it relates to jazz performers. Like, how are record companies paying us? How are promoters dealing with us? And in many cases, what they're finding is that there's economic
3: injustice happening there. Now, Norman Grants then takes up this idea in the way he books the artists that he books later in the 40s and into the 50s, that he will not accept engagements for audiences that segregate their theaters. Now, this is early, this is the 1940s. Most African American musicians have been playing to segregated audiences their entire lives and seen nothing wrong with it. Duke Ellington played to segregated audience. I mean, where else were you going to play?
2: Norman Granz had been to late night jam sessions where the musicians play together, improvising for hours at a time. He wanted to put that magic on stage for a real paying audience. This was the idea for jazz at the Philharmonic. It would become an institution, black and white, jamming on stage. This, for Norman Granz, is the most obvious way forward from the old swing bands. It started at Philharmonic Hall in Los Angeles, but soon he was touring the country, and into the 1950s, up to Canada and across to Europe. The shows featured Nat King Cole, Ben Webster, Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz, Lionel Hampton, but his big star was Ella Fitzgerald.
10: Give me something gentle, make it sentimental. Whatever you could suggest, I'll take Robin's nest.
0: He played the long game and the short game at the same time. By 1947, he was doing tremendous business across the United States on his terms. The people who worked for him were well compensated, both in terms of their appearances at his concerts and those who recorded for him. Certainly by the time Ella Fitzgerald joined Jazz at the Philharmonic.
10: And gentle, make it sentimental. Whatever you could suggest, I'll take robin's nest. Ba beep ba ba beep 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 ba 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 Baby Baby ba Sweet and gentle Make it Whatever you i
2: The Norman Grant's show worked. Black and white musicians together paid equally and black and white audiences are together too. But in the South, it was a different story.
1: One, two, three
0: they were doing some benefit in charleston south carolina they go in in the theater and the blacks were in the balcony and the whites were on the ground floor and norman told the promoter this is not going to work the uh, promoter went ahead and just shifted the crowd around a bit they did the show And at some point, uh, someone looked out the door and there was a gathering crowd and Norman went down to the pilot. At this point, they were actually flying the troop around the country and said, go out to the, the plane, get it ready to go. And during the last number, well, they'd been shuffling instruments out in another part of the building so the crowd would not see it. Ella was the last act. And at one point, the road manager was taking the drum set apart and the spotlight was focused on Ella. So by the time she finished, everything was in the van. They go out the back door and just gun it for the airfield. And when they're up in the air, they just see a trail of cars coming down the road. So that's a real example of just... Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead.
2: The history of jazz is a story of segregation, not just in how people lived, but in how they worked, how they made a living. That's not to say that black artists didn't make money, because they did, and many got rich and became American icons. Stars like Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald. But there was a system. Some made money at the expense of others. And that system persists to this day. It's the outcome of a system upheld by courts, of real physical segregation in cities, and a difference in opportunities, of access and structured bias in education. As it was in the world of jazz from its birth in the black neighborhoods in New Orleans, from its roots in prison songs, where an old economic system still flourished in the 20th century. That of slavery. In 1960, Cannonball Adderley recorded Work Song, which he said was inspired by the chanting of the prison chain gangs that he heard as a kid in Florida. The song was recorded with lyrics by Oscar Brown Jr. on the album Sin and Soul, also in 1960.
10: Breaking up big rocks on a chain gang Breaking rocks and saving my time Breaking rocks out, yeah, on a chain gang
4: Cause it done convince me a crime
2: Nina Simone recorded Work Song in 1966
4: Well I reckon that ought to get it been working and working but I still got so terribly far to go I committed crime, Lord, I need crime of being hungry and poor I left the grocery store and breathing. When they caught me robbing a store, I hold it steady right there while I hit it. Well I reckon that ought to get it been working and working, but I still got so terribly far to go. I heard the judge say five years On the chain gang you gonna go. I heard the church say five years later, I heard my old man scream, Lord, you know, home right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working and working, but I still got so terribly far to go.
2: But more than inspiring other jazz artists who followed them, At least one of the prisoners recorded by John and Alan Lomax in 1959 on Parchman Prison Farm in Mississippi actually saw the arc of justice, economic justice, bend his way. It came about because of the 2000 movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou? by Joel and Ethan Cohen, set in the Deep South during the Great Depression. Nathan Salisbury.
5: James Carter has an interesting story in that he was the leader of one of three versions of the work song "Poor Lazarus" that was recorded at this 1959 trip. This particular recording, "Poor Lazarus," ended up on the *O oh Brother Where Art Thou* soundtrack, which ended up selling however many untold millions of copies in the early 2000s. We went looking for James Carter because all of these royalties started coming in, and we didn't know where to find him and pay him his money. And you can imagine trying to find anyone named James Carter is a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. So we hired an investigative reporter who tracked James Carter down to the south side of Chicago, where he'd been living for the past 30 years or so. He got out of parchment in the 60s and had moved to Gary, Indiana to work at a GE plant. At the time, we called his wife, who was a storefront deacon, said that he was in the hospital recovering from pneumonia. And when we asked if she knew about the recording or the album or anything, of course, she had no idea and said, you know, you must have the wrong man because my husband isn't a singer. But when we sent her photographs that Lomax had took and recordings, she confirmed that was in fact James Carter. He got out of the hospital a couple days later. I think within the week was on a plane, his first plane journey with his wife and his daughters flying to the Grammy Awards in L.A. where the o Brother were arked out soundtrack. Won Best Album of the Year. We furnished him with a very large check. And according to his daughters, that gave him a new lease on life for the last couple of years of his life. He ended up passing away in
10: 2007.
2: This has been the Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. Next time, jazz and women's rights. I'm Alana Bridgewater.
4: see my sweet honey baby. I'm gonna break this chain off the rung. I'm gonna lay down somewhere shady. Lord, I sure am hard in the sun. Hold it right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that I'd ought to get it been working and working.